there are long-standing debates about testing in education. Some say we test kids too much, or that we should do away with things like the SAT. Others, though, think there should be more testing. It all boils down to this kind of idea of what's the right amount. But what if that's the wrong question? What if the way we think about testing and how we measure students altogether is just broken? That's the argument made by our guest today, Todd Rose, who has researched the history of grades and standardized testing and argues for a new way to think about all that. Hello and welcome to the EdSearch podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSearch. You may know Todd Rose's name from his best-selling book, The End of Average. Until recently, he was a professor at Harvard University's Grad School of Education, but he recently left academe to focus on his nonprofit think tank. That think tank is called Populous, and it's devoted to finding new ways to measure the individual views of Americans on issues like education. I will say, I met Todd a few years ago, um, back when he was a professor at Harvard, and I was doing a journalism fellowship there. I even audited one of his classes, and I, I discovered that he has a knack for explaining complex topics. And he does that by making sure that talk of testing and metrics, these abstract ideas, get grounded in stories of real people and real situations. You can see that for yourself if you Google his TED Talk about the end of average, which starts off with a surprising and high-profile example of how the idea of measuring an average person just doesn't work. That example is from the 1950s and involved the U.S. Air Force. And that's where we started our conversation. The story you tell in your TED Talk is about these fighter pilots where the seats were not designed for, you know, they were designed for the average um, soldier. And they found out when they came to think of it or where they came to really get soldiers in these cockpits of these expensive, fast, dangerous planes that nobody fit and that they were designing for nobody. And then you took this pivot where you're like, and schools like that. And it was, and honestly, I think people who listen to that talk, it's like a, you know, because at first it's a great story. It's fascinating. And you're basically saying that, that somehow schools are designed for no one. Could you just remind us what, that these typical students, there's no typical student. And what is that about? Yeah, it's look. it almost sounds like a bumper sticker, right? And so it's easy, like, like, uh, you keep thinking we're so used to this idea of average being a true thing that it's a little bit surprising to find out that sort of scientifically it really doesn't exist. And so, um, you know, we learned those lessons the hard way everywhere we've applied it. So as you, as you already uh, mentioned, you know, in terms of the whole field of human factors and ergonomics came out of that air force work where it was like, we kept thinking that a, a good design was one that catered to the average dimension of size, you know, height, um, chest circumference, you know, weight. And then when, when push came to shove, there just wasn't anyone that actually fit that. Literally nobody. It w- and that was, by the way, there were nobody of these pilots who were selected because they fit in the cockpits originally. So it just, it doesn't work. Um, now, it, you take education bought into those same ideas, right? Which was that like either the average was true or it was how far you deviated that mattered. And so if you think about it, even today, the system we built um, that we're still working in treats us as if an average kid actually does exist. So that's true for, uh, we're the only industry left that encourages design on average. So we call it developmentally appropriate 
but that just means it's like, what does the average fourth grader know? How, how well can they read, right? What are the interests? And then we encourage that design, right? Even though the Air Force bailed on that, you know, <laughs> it's like 60 years ago or whatever. But like, um, and you think about like even our assessment systems, which, which is really insane to me is like, we think when we get stuff about our kids, we think what it's saying is, how is my kid doing? That's not what it, most of them are saying. If they are norm referenced, it is literally just saying, how far does your kid deviate from the mythical average kid? <laughs> like this, And um, the last thing I'll say is think about pace and sequence, right? So even something like how much time we give someone to take, say, the SAT. People never think about where does that come from? These are literally indexed against how long it takes the average person to finish that exam. So we're, we're sort of stuck in a system where most of us don't believe this is true anymore. And yet the underpinnings of, this, of the standardized system are all rooted in the assumption that average works. I think, you, like you said, people kind of feel this in their bones, especially when they're in education. And yet things are going on. But for you, I, if you don't mind, because you do share the story in your book. I mean, you personally had this encounter as not being an average student when you were in yeah. high school. When you were in high school, <laughs> yeah. in fact... The system told you yeah. you were below average by grades, right? I mean, could you talk about... Like, like substantially below average, which was... Um, yeah, and, and I will say right off the bat, like, the science is the science, so I don't mind sharing my story. But, you know, as the old y- Yiddish proverb says, for instance, is not proof. So I don't mind sharing it, but um, the science stands on its own. But, but, yeah, for me, I think it's more about how I got interested in these things. So, yeah, I, like, I grew up in a rural Utah, and um, for whatever reason... It, the system didn't fit me very well at all. And like, I just, you know, I was a little overactive. I was a little challenged. I questioned authority a lot, which wasn't good in rural Utah. But, um, and as you can imagine, in a system that's standardized and just moves you along, error just multiplies, right? So if like, for example, if I get a, a C minus in algebra one, well, how am I going to do in algebra two, right? And um, so it culminated in high school where, I had just failed so many times and it was so far gone that like we agreed and the school really <laughs> told me I had to leave, but I like to pretend that we chose together. Um, but I had a 0.9 GPA. And so my senior year, they just said, okay, so I dropped out of school. Um, and shortly thereafter, my girlfriend found out she was pregnant. Now I would say she's still my wife today. So, you know, 20, 26 years later, but, but, um, yeah, like, so, um, but like I found myself uh, just a couple of years later, we had two kids. I was working a string of minimum wage jobs on welfare um, and had to decide how to, how to turn my life around. And, you know, as luck may have it, that that path took me to get a GED and went to night school at Weber State University and then got into Harvard for my doctorate. But I, I say all that because recognizing that, that what poor fit does in terms of your ability to actually perform was pretty obvious. I mean, it wasn't obvious to me at the time, but in, in retrospect, it became obvious. The other thing is, is that what I had to do to be able to turn my life around was start to know who I was as an individual. You know, not individualism as selfishness, just my distinctiveness and learn to make choices based on that that were giving me that good fit all the way through. And so I believe that insight is what allowed me to go from a 0.9 GPA to graduating with a 3.97 as the honor student of the year at Weber State and then go to Harvard. And so for me, it, it, it really left an indelible mark about the profound importance of fit. Um, and I believe that for me, when I think about true equal opportunity, it cannot just be equal access anymore, right, to a standardized experience. It is about equal fit between every single kid 
and the system, and particularly in education, that is tasked with developing them to their fullest potential. I really so thank you for for sharing that, and and I think you know one of the things that you know strikes me is that 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 personal example, that anecdote, the, it does it does help people get at these abstract ideas, and and I understand yeah. it, it sounds like it is driving your own personal interest in 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 attacking this problem and working on it, which, um, which I think our, 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 a lot of our listeners may relate to that kind of passion as well. Yeah. Well, can, I think you're hitting on something really important, which is, this is exactly why I was willing to share my story in general, because the mental abilities, they're abstract, right? You can't see them. It's not for nothing that the air force figures out body size is tangible, right? You can see it. And so it's easier to just well, yeah, obviously the tallest person you know isn't necessarily the heaviest person you know, right? These, these, so, so I think we have to give it a, a human dimension for people to get their head around the profound consequences of an ill-fitting education system. Yeah. And, you know, I first met you when you were, uh, like I said, when I was auditing a class you taught at Harvard on educational neuroscience. So that, that is a long way from, you know, D's, D's in math or whatever <laughs> you were, you were, you were right, experiencing right, right. in your, in your schooling. So how do we move on from here? I think there's a moment now where obviously there's the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, so there's almost like a two-part question. How, what is the, the practical things that schools and colleges can do once they, if they agree with your insight to, to do it? Because it is, it is a complicated reality in, in not having a mass education system that designs for kind of an average, right? How do we do it? Yeah. Well, but but here's the thing, it, like that sense that it must be really, really difficult, I will argue is a holdover. We are thinking about a, an old world, right? So, so let me give you a, um, a complimentary example. So in the, in the field of nutrition, uh, so same scientific science of individuality, same stuff I was a part of, some scholars in Israel asked the question about the glycemic index, right? Which is supposed to tell us how different foods elevate our blood sugar, except for that whole index is based on averages. And so they asked a a simple question, like how many people's (laughs) bodies respond the way the glycemic index says it should? So you won't be surprised given, you know, everything that I do. Uh, Zero, like literally thousands and thousands of people all over the world, nobody. Now that could sound like chaos. Like, what do you do? Everyone's a snowflake and like, this is it. Except for with some clever machine learning uh, techniques, they were literally able to, customize optimal nutrition for every single person and they can do it through an app. I, I have it. I subscribe to it called day two. And here, just to make it concrete, um, uh, diabetes runs in my family and I always was just, okay, I'd be really careful about that. Since the time I was an adult, uh, a nutritionist had told me, well, grapefruit is magical. So eat grapefruit. I literally had pink grapefruit, uh, almost every morning for breakfast. Well, when I did my um, individualized stuff and they looked at my gut biome, my blood, deep blood work, everything, it turns out that grapefruit is literally the worst thing I can eat. Literally nothing worse. It, is, it spikes my blood sugar more than chocolate cake. And now my wife who did it, not at all. It's actually fantastic for her. Okay. So this, th- th- these scientists with these insights about our individuality, it, in the past, our, our standardized systems got scaled through depersonalization, right? That was the only way you could do it. And guess what? If you and I were back then at the same time, we would have done the same thing because the, the alternative was not customized education. It was education for only a few people, right? So in this case, we are able to scale 
highly personalized nutrition and deal with this, this issue of metabolic disorders. So is that literally because we're using averages are guaranteeing that a bunch of people are going to become diabetic, right? And we're giving them bad advice. And you can do it at scale and it doesn't cost any more money. So let's go back to education. So in the now. medical version, you can do it at scale because you can, because what? What mechanism lets you do it? Because it, it the, the, the same yeah. app that's on my phone, like the, our digital technologies allow us to scale this to anyone. So they, they send me a kit. I get the basics of who I am and they run it through their stuff. And then, and by the way, I, I didn't just take their word for it. I literally tested my own uh, blood sugar levels after eating all the food to say, like, how, how accurate is their prediction about me? Shockingly accurate, like kind of disturbingly accurate. Yeah. Okay. So back to education. So if, let's think about this. Um, what we don't mean by personalized education is coddling kids and I want to learn about Transformers forever. Like, no, no, no. We're talking about like, this. it is having a system that has the flexibility and adaptability to be truly responsive to ch- a child's distinctiveness, okay? And, and cultivating that. So let's think about the, the basic components of this and think how easy this is easy to do, relatively speaking. I would have at least a handful of things in place. First is the flexible design, right? Our digital technologies, like an old textbook, you, you, it was expensive. Just scaling was expensive. But, but designing a really fantastic, flexible curriculum is tough up front, and then scale is cheap, right? So if you introduce something like universal design for learning, which shows you the ways that kids differ systematically, right? Not one-offs and build it in. If we know that in any given fourth grade classroom, you're going to have a wide range of reading ability. Well, why would we put that on the teacher to differentiate their instruction when you could build that into the curriculum? And, and I've been a part of building that, that software before. And it's, it's amazing what you can do with even just the open source stuff that we have. That's number one. So flexible design. Think about that as equivalent of a flexible cockpit, adjustable seats, right? Not rocket science, but you'll be shocked what it accomplishes. The second thing, and and the big win, and this is where there's a lot of um, acceptance of this need, which is mastery learning over fixed time and grades. I mean, it's absurd that we actually literally fix the amount of time kids have, and then we give them a grade, and as long as they don't fail, we move them on, right? Not, Not did you actually get to a high enough level of understanding that we are confident that you know what you should know. Well, we've known since Benjamin Bloom, right, that mastery learning works really well, but what Bloom figured out was that even though he could move people two standard deviations higher in performance, uh, when he and some economists ran the numbers, what it would take to give kids that kind of mastery-based tutoring, it was literally 22 times more than any country had ever spent on education. So he's like, this is not possible. Well, it is possible today. Right. And so as we go more digital, I don't mean kids sitting in front of screens all the time. I think that'd be a disaster. But the backbone is certainly going to be digital. It's not going to be analog. It's not going to be paper, pencil. Right. And that gives us this rare opportunity to realize that what we are after is ensuring that kids reach high levels of mastery. And so we can move kids at their own pace. Right. We can ensure assessments that are feedback mechanisms to the kid so they can continue to get better. And, and like the easy go to answer there is like Khan Academy. Right. I mean, he's so successful that it's, it's easy to forget how remarkable this really is, right? That kids can actually learn about a whole bunch of stuff all over the world for free, right? And again, I don't think that's the answer for everything, but, but mastery learning has to be front and center um, in any kind of new system we have. And then the final thing is, I, and this is important to me personally, who I am as an individual, some of that can be measured by other people, and some of it's just qualitative. It's just who I am, what I care about, what motivates me. 
And so I think these environments, it's really important that we recognize we, we're trying to do what sort of Montessori does. It's about self-determination. It's about kids learning how to make choices for themselves, right? And being responsible for the consequences. Because I think the biggest threat to the new education system is not that we won't go personal, because we will. There's just no way we're staying with the old system, now, especially given the pandemic. But it's that we will basically have a system that knows more about kids than they know about themselves, right? The, these algorithms that are like, do this next, do that next. And that feels like 1984 kind of version of like, I don't, I don't want that, right? I want a system that is constantly helping to improve the teacher-student, student-student relationships, which are always the heartbeat of good education. Yeah, I wanted to get to the pandemic because here we are with, you know, this big shock to the system and yeah. we're still in it. And it, it's obviously like for schools and colleges, it is just up and down the system been such a shock. And what, I mean, what have we learned? Have we, are we, are we actually heading toward the vision that you are talking about or, or, or not? Or how, what, what do you so, feel? It's, so, here, so my think tank studies these big public shocks to systems and what they mean for, for social change. And there's a couple of things. One, um, in our work, we study what we call private opinion research. So not just what people will say out loud, but what do they really think? What do they really believe? What do they really prioritize? And we've done this in not only things like the kind of lives they want to live and the country they want to live in, but what are their priorities for our key institutions? So we've done this in K-12 education. We did it in higher education. Um, we are doing it in criminal justice, immigration, these healthcare. And here's what we see over and over again. Without fail, there is remarkable divergence between what our systems do and what the public wants them to do. Um, pretty shocking. And it's, it's not accidental. It's part of that standardized effort, the Frederick Taylors who said, look, in the past, people were first. In the future, the system has to be first. And so now for the last, you know, 80 years, we've learned to serve the systems. And in reality, in a democracy, that's a really bad place to be. And so getting clear about the transformative change that's necessary to not just, not just make these systems better, but make them different. And I think this is the secret because sometimes those of us sort of in the know are kind of like, yes, 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 here's what parents want. Like, I promise you, whatever you think parents want, that, man, it is remarkable the, the sort of nuance and diversity about what they want for their kids out of education. So we've got, to, we've got to, first of all, spend a lot more time thinking about what it is people really want from these systems, particularly in education, and then working to actually deliver that. But the, the pandemic creates an opportunity and not surprisingly a, a, a challenge, which is, it introduces a handful of things. One is that um, there are short-term urgencies that you just can't neglect, right? It is just unacceptable that there are some kids sitting outside of Wendy's trying to get Wi-Fi so they can do their work. I mean, that is a moral failure on our part. But there's an opportunity there, right? Because the ability to drive, for example, broadband access for every kid in the country, the same way the, same way the New Deal helped electrify the country, Right? suddenly puts kids on, a, a, I'll say, a more even playing field and not by any stretch an even playing field yet. But now suddenly we're all having access to these same kind of systems and that, that's going to be really important. But there's, there's another th two things that are really critical here. Second is every pandemic or war or other public shocks to systems tend to um, help, help the public focus on their own values and priorities. We pretty quickly figure out what matters to us and what doesn't. So the public's going to be paying a lot of attention to that. When parents start going, bring their kids back to school, 
They, they have sharpened their sense of what they want, what they don't want. So that's a good opportunity here. Finally, um, there will be for sure a flight to normalcy, right? So after 1918 flu, World War I, Harding won with a campaign saying return to normalcy, right? And it's like, so people will think, oh, this desire to get back to normal must mean the status quo. It doesn't have to. So you think about what came after the, the last uh, pandemic was the roaring 20s, which was the least normal decade in our history, probably, right? And so what, what it really means is people want back to comfortable, something they're familiar with. So we have a really incredible opportunity in the next year to really help lay the, the enabling conditions culturally and institutionally to make the next 10 years truly transformative, right? So that the things that parents and students and stakeholders are asking are actually driving pretty dramatic change rather than calcifying us even further into the existing system. That's so interesting. And, you know, you, you mentioned your think tank's latest study, which just came out last week. Um, what is the biggest finding of that related to education? So about what people want from education when they're really given these private surveys that you just designed here. So, so first of all, we've done stuff around education specifically, and pluralism is the name of the game. It is so diverse. But what you do see is that people do share in education a common commitment to character, right, to relationships, to the, the personal. Um, they care a lot about mastery. They care a lot about more personalized stuff because they know that's better. What they don't want, where we are unified across demographics, is they don't want the system we have. <laughs> they, just, they don't want the standardized thing. They don't want standardized tests. I mean, standardized tests are literally, I mean, almost to the point where we're, we're, we're ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's how badly people dislike them. Um, but there's, there's, we're at risk of if we don't address that and, and shift to mastery-based kind of assessments, losing our a commitment to accountability, right? Where we just suddenly are like, who cares? We don't like these measurements because they are bad. Well, then what are we measuring? What are we, how do we hold ourselves responsible to ensuring that parents and kids are getting a good education? Yeah, so I want to make, that's really interesting to me because it, it gets back to my first question of like, well, how do you do it differently? You're not saying don't measure. You're not saying no. by, by the end of average, you're not saying stop making mathematical guesses or not guesses, no, but like no, you're just no, saying, no. you're just saying measure differently. Is that accurate? Yeah. In fact, I would say most of what we've done is false precision. It gives us the, the appearance that we understand when we don't understand, right? Like, so you can use the glycemic index and pretend you understand how to help people stay healthy, but you do not understand, right? It was not until you took seriously their individuality that you truly understood and could take action. What I'm calling for is we know how to measure in ways that both are uh, have fidelity toward dis human distinctiveness and allow us to make aggregate uh, measures that allow us to hold the system accountable, right? But right now, those are not the, the, the instruments that we've used because in the past, all we've cared about is comparative measures of kids in service of superintendents making comparative claims about schools, right? Like, and so it's just, we just have to shift over and recognize that our distinctiveness matters and that we know how to deal with that and we can build a more rigorous, inclusive, and high-performing system than we could even imagine. That's based on the individual kind of yeah. based student-based world. So I'd say, I'd say, look, the, the takeaway is this. In the past, you only got scale through depersonalization. In our digital society, the exact opposite is true, right? You can actually get effective scale through personalization. But it's, it's more than just coddling to kids. It's about appreciating human distinctiveness and making it the centerpiece of good design and good assessment. 
Well, we'll leave it at that. And I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for sharing today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Search Podcast. As regular listeners know, we do this every week with interviews or audio stories about change in education. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, We're there. We're all over the place on these apps. And if you like the show, please take a minute to give us a rating or write a quick review. Or better yet, share the Ed Search Podcast on social media. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. That track is called Vela Vela. Thanks to my colleagues in our small but scrappy newsroom at Ed Surge. And thanks for listening.